0: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Options Action is brought to you by TD Ameritrade, where you gain access to research tools to help you sharpen your trading strategies.
2: It is Friday. Welcome to Options Action. Tonight, oil's up, but many big energy names are not. We'll diagnose the divergence. Then, why Peloton is back in the race after several stumbles and how you can draft with it. Finally, skewing you what it is, what it signals, and what you should do right now. With us always tonight, Carter Worth, Mike Coe, and Tony Zhang. Let's get right to it. Oil prices have been increasing, but associated energy names have not quite followed suit. The chart is drilling down on what that means. Carter?
1: Well, that's right, Melissa. You've got obviously a great move in the commodity, all commodities, and then yet copper's given back a lot, all the grains have, oils continued higher, and yet the energy shares are not progressing. I think there's a message there, and the message is that actually energy is not a great place to be. It doesn't mean they have to crash or come apart in a big way, but it's a time to anticipate, frankly, a big sideways dull period rather than the very bullish consensus that there is on the street. Let's look at a couple tables and then some charts. So just look at the one month performance, you see it here on your screen, oil uh, versus XLE. And what we know of course is those numbers uh, tell a story. The commodities up uh, 11, 12% and the energy shares, XLE dominated by the course of Exxon and Chevron but many others only at 5.6. Look at the three month performance, next slide. Oil up 20 and XLE, the energy stocks only up 10.4. So then what about if we just start the meter, start the story from the day of the peak before COVID? Look at the next slide. So this is looking at the peak in the S&P before the COVID sell off, right? February 19th, 2020. And you're looking at oil was at $54 a barrel and it's at $74 a barrel now. Well, that's up 40%. The energy uh, complex, the S&P 500 energy sector is unchanged. So you've got the commodity well above where it was before the pandemic, and yet energy is essentially where it was. That's uh, not particularly encouraging. And so uh, take a look at a two panel chart. The top here is XLE. And the bottom is relative performance to the S&P. What we know is actually relative performance peaked back in March. And here we are uh, basically about to be July 1. And so all in, Energy delivered four months of outperformance from November to March compared to the S&P. And it's been nothing but a pain or a hurt before that and since. And so finally, an XLE chart itself, we had a chance to break out. It did not and then fell back. And now I think we're stuck at the level that you see there. The betting is that XLE and uh, constituent stocks are going nowhere and profit from lack of volatility.
2: All right, Carter. Um, So, Mike, what's the trade here?
1: Yeah. So, you
3: know, Carter actually referenced this with respect to XLE. He was talking about Exxon, Chevron, Conoco. These integrated oil companies, just those three, make up nearly 50% of the XLE overall. And I think we only need to look at one of those companies, the largest, Exxon, to get some sense of where the fundamental trouble might lie here. So with their cash flow, dividends are one possibility, debt repayment is another, and investment, essentially, in depleting reserves is the final choice that these companies have to make. And unfortunately... Even with oil at these levels, they can't actually satisfy all three of these. Exxon is trying to maintain their dividend. Their debt levels are actually above the target ratios uh, that they previously articulated, and they can't really afford to see some increase in their debt expense. And of course, they are not replacing all of their reserves, which, of course, if you don't do that, what that means is lower production in the future. And I think that is one of the overhangs that you're seeing amongst the integrated names in particular. And as Carter pointed out, these represent a relatively large portion of the XLE ETF. So if you're playing for a range-bound thesis, usually what you're trying to do is sell some options. And the structure we're going to talk about is an iron condor, specifically selling an iron condor. Now, what is an iron condor? Sounds complicated. Really what you're doing is you're combining a short put spread with a short call spread. And the important thing to remember here is that when you do this, you're going to collect premium on both of these. Even if you get the trade wrong, of course, the stock can only be lower or it can be higher or it can be in the same place. It cannot be some combination of these. So specifically, what I was looking at was the August 48, 53, 57, 62 iron condor. So I'm selling that put spread, which was around $1.10 at the time I was looking, and then also selling that upside call spread. Similarly, it was about $1.10. So net-net, we were looking to collect about $2.20, maybe just a penny or two more on a $5-wide iron condor. And the idea here is, of course, that the break-evens are going to be below your short put strike. Less the premium that you collected, and above the uh, short call strike again, net of the premium you collected. So essentially, the break evens are down eight percent, up seven percent ish, and of course, if the stock simply stays approximately where it is right now, that's the amount that uh, you know that would obviously be the ideal circumstance.
2: Tony, what do you make of this trade?
4: I think this is a really interesting use of an iron condor. Uh, As Mike said, an iron condor is a combination of the put credit spread and the call credit spread combined. Now, the general rule of thumb that we typically have with these iron condors is you want to collect about one-third of the vertical width on each side. So he he has a $5 vertical width on each side, but he's collecting $2.20. That's actually 44% of the width. So significantly higher premium that he's collecting on this one than what we normally would see. And that skews the risk-to-reward ratio of this particular iron condor closer to one to one rather than the two to one that we typically see with this type of structure. Another thing I want to point out for investors who may be new to this strategy as far as what you might want to do in terms of managing this type of trade is that if the trade starts to collect about half of the premium or the half of the max profit on this those are good times to potentially taking profits on an iron condor. But if the tr- if the stock starts to trade towards the upper strike of the calls of the call strike or the lower uh, or the sh- short strike of the put strike one of the things that you can actually do is adjust the profitable side of the iron condor and uh, roll it into effectively what is an iron butterfly and as long as you keep the $5 width on the other side you're able to collect more premium without having to commit more capital so it's a great way to potentially adjust the trade that is starting to drift towards one way or the other.
2: My comments on, on that uh, suggestion?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important thing that we, we really should point out, and that is that when you do credit trades, when you're collecting options premiums, it isn't necessary to wait all the way to expiration to collect every last penny before you make adjustments or potentially close and take profits. And the reason is because as the re- remaining premium is diminished, your risk-reward relationship changes dramatically. For example, if I sell a put, For $5, and it's now $0.50, the remaining $0.50 is the maximum profit from that point until expiration, and the risk-reward may no longer be attractive. So you should be ready in trades like this to either take profits or adjust when things look good.
2: All right, let's switch gears here, and this time the pun was intended. (laughs) Switching gears to Peloton and why this stay-at-home play might have more mileage left to go. Tony, take it away.
4: Yeah, so peloton has definitely had a challenging last six months what between the supply chain issues that it's had and the tread recall recently but i do think that it's poised potentially now for a breakout now a lot of that is behind it now if we look at the chart first of all what you see is that the stock it peaked in january about 170 and traded all the way down to 80 dollars. and during that time it formed a bearish trend line which just last month started to break out Higher now we've confirmed that breakout. So this is the first instance or, or, or suggestion that the stock is ready to rally from here. But if you look at the chart or draw the lines a different way, you see an inverted head and shoulders, a completing of this bottoming formation from this eighty dollar bottom, and this has a neckline of around one hundred and twenty-five dollars. So if you break out above that one twenty-five, you're really projecting all the way up to about one hundred and forty dollars, and this really reflects, you know, the uh, underperformance that we've seen from this supply chain and the tread recall that's now behind it and the chart is reflecting what i believe is a better environment going forward and if you look at the business itself the recent international expansion that it's going through and the corporate wellness programs that it's launching is actually expanding its total addressable market which uh, when you couple it with the profitability that we're expecting from Peloton here in 2021, I think that is a strong fundamental case for this stock to trade higher. So the trade structure that I'm using reflects the fact that we've completed this bottoming formation, but it hasn't broken out yet. And the timing on this can be a little tricky. So I'm going out to the August 6th weekly expiration and i'm selling the 120 108 put spread here so that even if this stock doesn't quite break out here for the next couple of weeks i'm still able to collect premium and when it does break out that's when i'm likely going to be able to take profit on this i'm collecting about eight dollars and fifty cents on that august 120 put while paying only about $3.60 for that 108 put net net here I'm collecting $4.90 that's over 40% of the vertical width trying to skew the risk reward in my favor while I wait for this breakout
2: Carter do you agree with Tony's uh, chart analysis
1: sure those are those are great lines meaning uh, the point of our, our annotating a chart is to show key levels and why those levels are are key are do they matter and Uh, Do they serve as a reference point for the prospects going forward? So you have a stock that drops 50%. Interestingly, this circumstance, and there's about a 90% correlation with Peloton and Tesla, with Peloton and Tesla and the solar stocks like the ETF tan, meaning great run-ups, big market beaters that all had great collapses, 50 60% in many cases, and all have had massive rebounds. And these formations typically imply higher prices.
3: So, Mike, what would you make of Tony's trade? Uh, well, I definitely like doing credit spreads, particularly when you can collect as much of the distance between the strikes as he's doing here. And, in fact, you know, he was talking about that on the XLE trade. This one sets up a little bit better, of course, because in this case, the put spread that he's selling actually expires sooner. And, of course, when we do credit trades, we like to obviously favor nearer dated expirations if we can get them. I can't really speak to the valuation uh conversation here because to me I would have always thought that Peloton could potentially face additional competition and I'm not convinced that their valuation is one that I'd want to necessarily get behind that said this is obviously a brand that people who have bought their products they're very enthusiastic about it historically that has provided longer term tailwinds even for high growth and high multiple stocks than you might see in some other areas and so obviously if you are a believer in the name this is a trade structure that I like
2: all right still to come skew. Professor Ko explains why such a short word could have a big impact on how you position your portfolio right now. And don't forget our website, optionsaction.cnbc.com, and our newsletter, which you can sign up for. We're back
0: in two. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC business news updates wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome back to Options Action. With the markets at new highs and volatility around lows, Professor Co. thinks now is a time to educate you on SKU. <laughs> Mike, take it away.
3: Yeah, so when we talk about skew, really what we are talking about is the relative price of of out-of-the-money calls to at-the-money options to out-of-the-money puts. So one of the things that we sometimes will get in a situation like this is sort of some antithetical or contradictory uh, market setups. And I think we're kind of seeing that right now because oftentimes what you'll see is when skew is elevated, it reflects a heightened sense of anxiety by market participants. Why is that? Because they will elevate the price of downside puts as they start buying protection against some kind of an anticipated decline in market prices. But what's interesting about that, and right now we are seeing skew levels basically getting up to the kinds of uh, heights that we were seeing, you know, basically at the height of the pandemic drawdown. So out-of-the-money puts are actually quite expensive relative to at-the-money options. This does a couple of things. So one of them would be that if you were trying to buy put spreads, for example, to hedge your portfolio, interestingly, all else equal, the cost of those put spreads might actually go down rather than up because the the at-the-money puts are staying about the same level, but the the out-of-the-money puts that you'd be selling against them to help finance it are going up in price. But actually, I also think it sets up very interestingly if you're thinking about another way to make a bullish bet. So let's walk through a trade example that I saw setting up today that I think is rather interesting. And specifically, I was looking at a ratio risk reversal. I was looking out to September, and the September 410 puts were priced at about $7.20. So making a bullish bet on SPY, I could sell those and collect the $7.20 and then use the proceeds of those puts to finance the purchase of the out of the money 446 strike calls. Those were $2.40 each. Notice I could actually buy three of those for every one downside put that I was selling. So how does this actually play out in the real world if S&P moves up or down? Well, I'm short a put that's about 3.9% out of the money. So if the market declines 10%, I would lose about 6.1%. Of course, if it stays above that level, I won't lose on those short puts. Contrarily, I'm going to be long those 446 calls. Those are about 4.5% out of the money. If the market rose 10%, I would make 16.5% in terms of profits. So I have a very asymmetric payoff. And that dynamic is created by the fact that people are paying up to get the downside puts and not so much to get those out-of-the-money calls. And in a way, we find that we can sort of get a call-like payoff by doing this. So this could be an interesting way to substitute a long exposure in the S&P for the equities that we have because we get that nice asymmetry.
2: Carter, what's your take?
1: Well, one thing to consider, and it's obviously being discussed, uh, you can see it in the media and clients talking about, there's a little bit of a, a breath issue, if you will, of late. Uh, specifically, um, major indices are not making the high that the S&P is making. Uh, I've got a table here, maybe you can uh, uh, look at that. But basically, we know that today, yesterday, the S&P 500 is making uh, a new all-time high. And yet, if you look at the S&P Equal Weight Index, That hasn't made a high since May 10th, or if you look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, May 10th, or the Dow Jones Transports, May 10th. These are all six plus weeks ago. The S&P Midcap hasn't made a high since April 29th, and the Russell since March 15th. So uh, the issue is is that the opportunity that the breath improves. Or is there uh, some question as to why is it just the super cap names and others that are keeping it? One stat to consider, and I think it's worth it. Um, the percentage of stocks in the S P 500 that are above their own 50-day moving average is only at 49%. Now, there are only two instances in the past 15, 20 years where that has happened. You have the s and making a new high, and yet only 50% of the stocks are above their own 50-day. One was in December of 99 and the other was in June of 1998, just before the long-term capital debacle. So not much data, two instances, but it's, it's food for thought.
2: Mm, very interesting table, Carter. Um, Tony, your last word on skew.
4: Yeah, so I think this is a fantastic dive into volatility because I see a lot of investors will use more generalized uh, measures of volatility such as IV rank or IV percentile to measure whether uh, implied volatility is cheap or expensive. But volatility is far more nuanced than that. And I think Mike's example shows you how he's able to collect so much premium on that short put to finance three upside calls. In this particular case, leveraging the potential upside while limiting his downside. So for investors who are using implied volatility rank or percentile, this gives you uh, more data to look into the underlying volatility surface that you're actually trading when you're trading these options. Definitely look into that. And as far as you know, Carter's um, uh, comments on the charts, that's exactly why I think this type of strategy is suitable in this current market environment. I've been talking, uh, You know, the market breadth problem is something that's been existing for quite a few weeks now. The one thing is that that could go on for a few more weeks or maybe even a few more months. So during that time, as markets continue to melt up, if you will. Uh, This type of uh, strategy allows you to take advantage of that while limiting your downside risk.
2: All right. Coming up, one of the most discussed names this week, Nike, what to do with last week's trade now that all the opinions are in. Plus, got a question out there, tweet us at Options Action. You might just get your answer on air. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Options Action. Last week, Tony made a short run at Nike ahead of earnings.
4: When we look at the chart itself, the stock has largely been trading sideways for the last eight to nine months or so, and it's already started to break some intermediate support levels around $130. But more importantly, relative to its sector, the consumer discretionary sector, Nike is already starting to break below some significant support levels here, and that poor relative strength does not bode well going into earnings next week. I'm going out to the June 25th weekly, 123 August 130 put diagonal here, spending about $6.25 for the August 130 puts, and selling the June 25 weekly options, 123 puts against that for about $1.24. Net-net here, I'm paying about $5
2: well, on earnings, the stock spiked to a new high. Tony, though, you say you can still continue down this path. How?
4: Yeah, so this is a prime reason why we use options to place these options uh, earnings bets. Clearly, this is one that did not work out. But one thing that you can do is buy back those 123 puts and hold on to the August 130 puts and see if there, there is a significant downdraft here over the next two months uh, through the August expiration.
2: Okay. Up next, we got your tweets and the final call. Welcome back to Options Action. Time to take your tweets, our first of your rights. I believe the dollar will continue to gain. I was looking at the UUP selling the January 26 call, buying the January 21-25 call for the cost about a share. Mike, what are your thoughts?
3: Okay, so I, I like the fact that you're looking out fairly far to purchase calls to make a bullish bet, and that's true whether it's UUP or anything else. However, when you're using call spreads, sometimes you want to look a little bit shorter dated. I might actually just buy that 25-strike call and then look for opportunities to actually leg into a spread and possibly sell something near dated against it.
2: Okay. Our next viewer asks, I own Virgin Galactic shares, and I'm thinking of writing a covered call. Any suggestions? Current bid 1622. Thanks in advance. Tony, take this one.
4: Well, I think this is a great time to consider selling cover calls. The challenge you're going to find is actually finding strike prices that are high enough. The only expiration that I was able to find is going out to July. You can, I would go out to that 105, even 115 strike to look for uh, a cover calls opportunities on a, on a stock like Virgin Galactic that's this volatile.
2: Carter, um, what do you make of the chart here after a 38 percent spike?
1: That's just a 38% spike. They don't happen out of nowhere. And how about this? The entire float turned over today. You're talking about volume of 260 million shares. I think it goes higher.
2: All right. Quick final call. Tony, what do you say?
4: Uh, Riding Peloton higher, selling a put credit spread.
0: Mike, quick. Risk reversal. That money starts now.